everyone. Uh, today is July 4th, 2010. Happy Independence Day to all those of us in the United States and all of its citizens and the country. And woohoo! <laughs> anyway, uh, today will be podcast 286 for Treks in Sci Fi. What you're going to have today is the show is going to be taken up by an interview that I did with uh, a science fiction author named David Williams. I interviewed him actually last week in preparation for being away for the 4th and everything like that. So this was recorded, uh, I believe, last Saturday. Dave and I sat down probably for about an hour, I guess, and talked about his uh, his Autumn Rain trilogy of science fiction books. It's, it's really good stuff. I know you're going to want to check out his website over at Autumn Rain. 2110.com and if you didn't get that I'll mention it at the end of the show and I think we mentioned it a couple times during our conversation but uh, I had a good time again uh, Dave's a great guy to talk to and uh, I think you're going to enjoy this so um, sit back uh, relax and enjoy the interview with sci-fi author David Williams Today we have a special treat for you. We've got another interview with with a book author, and I, I know you're all going to enjoy listening to this, and I think it will intrigue you, and I think it will uh, hopefully get you out to go out and uh, purchase uh, the books of this author. We have uh, David J. Williams with us. Say hi. <laughs> Rick, hi. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Uh, David... Uh, uh, got in touch with me, and he uh, has written. I think it's is it a total of three novels so far, David? It it, it is a full trilogy, indeed. All right, and it is. Uh, why don't uh, to begin with, David? Just give us a little bit, and uh, obviously you'll have to tell everyone about that accent that I'm picking up. But uh, uh, <laughs> give us a little bit of background on yourself uh, for those maybe who aren't familiar with you and your work. Yeah, no worries, Rick. And, and again, really uh, appreciate having uh, me on the show, and it's great to talk with you. Um, name's Dave Williams. I uh, currently live in D.C., uh, but I'm from the United Kingdom originally, and my dad's half Australian. Uh-oh. If you're picking up any kind of a funky accent, that's what's going on. It's made it's made World Cup loyalties very precarious. Um, but you've got all the more, you know, you, loyalties you, for sure. you've got multiple ways to win that way, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I have several strategies mapped out um uh and uh the finale of my autumn rain trilogy um machinery of light was just put out by bantam dell so bantam dell's put out each of the books for the last three years the mirrored heavens uh, came out in 2008 uh, the sequel the burning skies came out last year and the machinery of light uh wraps 
trilogy, and it really does wrap it up. There's no fake setup for a fourth book, or I know in SF we have these unending series. Yeah, really wanted to sort of say everything within three books and answer everybody's questions, and that just happened about four weeks ago. Yeah, that's good. I, I know some some series, uh, I, sci-fi a little bit, but I think even fantasy seems to sometimes drag things just on and on and on. Just you know, it's like okay, come on. But um, I was glad to hear that you you just. It sounds like you had it pretty well mapped out then. Well, it's 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 funny because I I understand where those authors are coming from. I mean, not only I think it's tremendous fun to have a series that go on forever, but like. It's very tough to walk away from characters and stories you spent several years with. I mean, it's like saying, you know, goodbye to an old friend that, in a sense, you won't see again. Um, and so there was, I realized, a lot of psychological resistance to myself in um, completing this trilogy. Um, but ultimately, I wanted something. It was a full arc. It's it's set uh, in the early twenty second century, so about a hundred years from now. It's it's near future. Um, it describes a world in which the United States is confronted with a new Eastern superpower, and so it's a second Cold War, and they've weaponized the Earth-Moon system, and they've sundered cyberspace, so there is no worldwide net. It's divided into an Eastern net and a Western net. And um, then there's kind of a cyberpunk milieu imposed on top of that, so that my characters are essentially agents for the U.S. government. Yeah, I, yeah I, have to, uh, I have to say, I should have said this a little sooner. Uh, we were chatting a little before we officially started to record, but uh, this is, uh, you had sent me uh, the first two books in the trilogy, and even though other interviews that I've done, I've been able to read them, I haven't had a chance. I've gotten about 40 pages into your first one, into the, the Mirrored Heavens book, so um, we had talked about this before we started to record the how you'll yeah. I'll have to depend on you to describe it a little bit more. But uh, I'm enjoying what I'm reading so far, and I'm looking at the uh, the map. You know, you were just talking about how in the you know the the setting is about 100 years in the future, and you basically have I I, I guess there are three main sort of factions in the world, or in a, really two, but then one sort of group of neutral nations. But you sort of have the North and South America kind of teamed up. And then, uh, and then I guess the what you call the Eurasian Coalition, right? And their allies, which yeah. is, which is sort of like Eastern Europe, uh, uh, you know, all the Soviet Union area and, and a good part of Africa, basically. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the nightmare scenario for U.S. foreign policy, has always been that Eurasia gets dominated by one nation. I mean, that was what the Nazis almost pulled off. Right. That was what the Soviet Union almost pulled off. And so this is a world in which that has been that the, the Russia and China have essentially united on foreign policy decisions and military operations, at least. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Because the only thing that they fear more than each other is Uncle Sam. And so, so it's, it's a, I mean, I grew up in the, in the Cold War. And so the, the note of, you know, this large Eastern superpower was kind of, you know, that, that had us in a state of, you know, mutually assured destruction was fairly familiar to me. And I was amazed at how people kind of forgot about it and left it by the wayside. Um, yeah. And it was once it was all over. Yeah. And it's not that really that long ago. I, I, I feel the same way. You know, I kind of grew up in that era, too, a little bit about, you know, what's going to happen. And, you know, the whole I can remember, you know, just and these days. Yeah, there's a lot of people, I think, that don't really re remember that or appreciate it or never experienced it. 
Well, there was, I remember there was an essay that came out in 1990, as soon as the Berlin Wall fell, by a guy named Fran Fukuyama. Um, he's a, a professor at Hopkins, and, and he wrote this book called The End of History. And I don't know if you remember, but it was a huge bestseller. I mean, it totally hit the zeitgeist. And it was basically all about, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, history is over, that that liberal capitalism, that's that's liberal with a, a, a large L, um, um, not left-wing liberal, is... is, is, is culmination of history um and uh, that struck me as just so absurd and what was interesting to me about it is that you know it was obvious to me even as an 18 year old how wrong-headed that was how many other possibilities there were and that's because i'd been reading science fiction for the previous 10 years and so it was really a wake-up call to me of just how divorced our society is from a true science fiction framework our thought leaders our intellectual leaders are not versed in science fiction and that's what i think science fiction has to offer that it's this sense of the possibilities that are out there that the directions the world would take um, yeah i definitely certainly yeah I, I yeah i certainly agree there you know there's there's what do they say something uh you know life is stranger than fiction or something like that isn't there a, a famous quote that goes something you know that it's things will happen that are, are beyond what even people can imagine sort of so that, you know, it's, yeah, ex exactly. And, and we're at this point right now with humanity where, you know, as Stephen Hawking has said, it's the next couple of hundred years, they'll decide the fate of humanity one way or another. And what, what I realized in looking at a lot of science fiction is that you get sort of the present day, no thrillers, you know, a la Tom Clancy. Um, mm -hmm. not that would necessarily include that in science fiction. And then, and then the far future stuff, I mean, you know, yeah, with the Star Trek sort of material, the, the, the grand space opera material, um, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, but what I was realizing in, in researching these books is that there's sort of this middle ground between those that's getting short shrift. It's the near future. It's it's what's going to be happening in the next few hundred years. And so that's why we're setting this trilogy in a world that's familiar, but mm, kind of distant at the same time. Yeah, and, and when you think about it, the the you know just think about the last you know say one hundred to one hundred and fifty years and how things are are so different in terms of at least technology and 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 lifestyle. I'd say for for a good you know definitely in the United States and I'd say a good portion of the world. But and you project out you know you don't need to go five hundred years in the future. A hundred years from now, thing, things will be quite different. Yeah, and one of the things I, I wanted to get at there was, in fact, one of the original genesis of the uh, of the books was this notion of space weaponization, right? What well, what is it really going to look like when the nations put weapons in space, you know? And and uh, you know the liberals decry that, and the conservatives can't wait. But the, the, the truth of the matter is that this is going to happen. This is the evolution of warfare. That space is already militarized. You know, I mean, every time a GI in Afghanistan uses GPS, that's using the militarization of space. But what is it like when other nations try and deprive us of our space-based assets? And so what I realized is there's a ton of cool stuff online of essays written by U.S. Uh, planners, U.S. military planners at the Air War College and so on, that a lot of this stuff is in the public domain. And it's fascinating. Sort of the, the guys are looking at the theory and practice of a warfare, space warfare that hasn't happened yet. And obviously it's not going to be like Star Wars where you have spaceships maneuvering and blithe violation <laughs> of the laws of orbital mechanics and that kind of thing. Fun right. as that is. Yeah, you won't have a lot of dog, not dog fights in lasers. space probably, right, exactly. So, uh, so No, you'll have something much crazier and much, uh, much more sinister in some ways.
Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the, the, the first, now when you first, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you first came up with the idea for this, maybe tell us a little bit about how that came. I mean, you, you have a little bit that you wanted to set something in this era, but the two things that came to mind for me while you were talking there in the last couple of minutes were first, did you, did you always kind of plan to have it a multi-book series? And, and, and then second, uh, there seems to be, uh, sort of a, a pretty good chunk of a spy, uh, espionage kind of element going in the books. And I wondered where that came from and, and how you wanted, you know, why you put that in there in a way, I mean, rather than maybe making it uh, in a different fashion. Well, I think, uh, you know, in answer to your first question, I originally planned the whole thing as like one giant book. Uh, ah, you know, okay. 2,000 two, 2, pages. <laughs> it, it seems like a lot of authors, and... a lot of authors and a lot of, you know, even people that do movie scripts and there, a lot of things that always seem to be like, yeah, it was all going to be like one big book or one big movie, but... Then they always realize, well, boy, I have way just too many things I want to put in to make that work, you know. Yeah, I eventually, I eventually sanity eventually caught up with me, and I eventually <laughs> turned this yeah. into a trilogy. Um, yeah. And 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 yeah, I mean, the 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 issue of espionage was definitely one that I wanted uh, to put in there. I mean, you can think of this in some ways as, you know, space warfare, realistic space warfare, quote unquote, is one of drivers of the book and in near term is one of the drivers of the book um espionage is is you know i I grew up on a lot of cold war thrillers um len dayton le carre that sort of thing in fact my my age did actually pitch this to bantam she sold this to bantam as her one line tagline was it's john le carre on sci-fi back and I, I don't know exactly what sci-fi crack is, but it sounded good to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and John Le Carre is, you know, a, a hero of mine. I mean, I, I had his books on my bedside table half the time I was writing the books. I mean, so it's an espionage, cyberpunk, military SF mashup is what you're looking at in the Autumn Rain trilogy. You've got guys in powered armor in each other's butts, but you've also got... Uh, hackers, you know, running on the net, and these folks are all working for different intelligence branches of the U.S. government, which is itself under threat from both the Eurasians, but also from this terrorist group, Autumn Rain, who you can think of as, you know, a group so savage they make Al Qaeda look like the Teletubbies. Uh, this is like a next level, early 22nd century terrorist group that brings down the world space elevator and promises further strikes, um, and. Uh, uh, that's that was sort of where I was trying to go uh, with the books. The, the 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 espionage was absolutely critical to that kind of a fabric. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing that you must be a fairly like tech tech savvy, and and you enjoy things like computers and, and all the gadgets that you can get these days. Because obviously there's there's a good portion of that in in the book. A lot, you know, like you say, they're you know hackers and 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 people doing things, and and this this uh, the way the spies are. are um, given their uh, information and missions and things like that from what I can uh, gather so far. Yeah, and I'm, I'm fascinated as much by the, the interplay of, you know, the tech itself on the humans involved, right? I mean, I don't necessarily get off on the tech for tech's sake. You sure. Know, I, I, that's why, you know, you look at the weapons, you know, they, they, don't, they don't get described as being, you know, it's a Mitsubishi 7.67 millimeter. I mean, you don't get the details uh, instead they're trying to lift i'm trying to lift that up and make that a little bit more archetypal but yeah looking at what it would be like for you know 
these agents who are essentially a hundred years from now verging on post-human with their abilities. They don't have uh, they, they, they are specialists of the very highest magnitude. That they, they, they don't have lives, certainly not social lives, in the sense that you or I might. Um, and uh, these are not characters, also, who necessarily want you inside their head, because often they're concealing their own agendas. This mm-hmm. being espionage, and everyone's sort of playing everybody else. And any, you know, Autumn Rain's trying to infiltrate the U.S. government, and you know, you start to realize they're not just you know assassins; they're not just terrorists, takeover artists. Um, and and so it's it's very much an idea of you know the enemy could be not only inside the room; the enemy could be inside head. It's where espionage takes you a hundred years from now. Yeah, I was curious if you've uh, two things that 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 also popped into my head. If you've ever seen the television series Dollhouse at all, did you ever watch you know, it's, it's, watch that at all, or if you're familiar with it? I, I, I've never I've never watched it, but the trope is one that you know. Actually, someone accused me on Facebook ripping off Dollhouse. They were uh, like, uh, "Yeah, this this whole notion <laughs> of memory hacked agents and." You know, so why don't you confess to me? That's why well, you got all this from Joss Whedon. But you've been God. writing a lot before that I, show even came out, I believe, right? This book well, came this, out, yeah. This, this, this is this. That's that's what happens, right? Is that people, you know, particularly fans out there, don't necessarily understand the the cold hard reality. Every book they see on the shelves is usually several years in the making. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's a fascinating trope to play with, though that that. You know that is quite likely that you know it, it's it's kind of the classic you know uh, and it's not like I would him Joss either it, it you know it all kind of comes out PKD right I mean Philip K Dick was the guy who established these unreliable narrators and these you know the points where you can't even trust your own memory you know we can remember oh yeah that sale that idea you know totally I think Heinlein and I mean the and they're that the idea of basically taking you know it's always been thought you know the brain the human brain is just a very sophisticated computer so the idea that and it's been around in you know in sci-fi literature and all kinds of different forms and for for years and years and years the idea that to be able to program information basically into someone's brain you know here's the memories here's what you need to do this mission and, you know, now go do it. That that yeah, that concept. I was just more curious if you if you'd seen it and what you thought of it more, and and not just because of that. I you know, there's there's also this phrase. What what, what you're you're being an author, you've probably heard this, but isn't there a phrase that there's only like really three main like ideas for for any kind of good story, whether it's in written form or film or whatever, something like you know, think, <laughs> something like that, right? I think Borges had them down to four, but yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 all about what you do with it. And yes, I think one of the definitely, things that's, definitely. that's one of the themes that definitely rises across all this work is the notion that, you know, I mean we already invest a huge amount I mean, look at the amount of money spent on an elite soldier a hundred years from now or a hundred years ago versus now versus a hundred years from now. I mean Sure. Particularly, yeah. you know, yeah. this is about this is about the turning of human beings into weapons. Um and so what's that going to look like? Yep. And then what does that say for a society that's able to do that? Yeah. You know, so I wanted to have – I wanted to sort of let it play out on two different levels. I wanted to have, you know, that, that um, you know, eternal sunshine, the spotless mind meets James Bond as it were, right? You know, it's the, the memory play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also the James Bond play. Also the, the, the – you know, you've got supersonic maglev chases beneath the Atlantic. You've got hijack 
space planes in near space. You've got battles in the South Pole of the Moon. I mean, I wanted to sort of get that spirit of swashbuckling tech adventure um, into it as well, um, where the characters are sort of going through these various situations. Yeah, I I would say that you know even the little bit that I've read and and and, and the blurbs on your the other two books in the trilogy too, it looks to me like this is something. It's very visual. You look like you have you know you're you're somebody who probably enjoys movies and and visual things because I I could easily see these things being turned into some kind of a movie. I mean you know this isn't what I would call just sort of a cerebral you know kind of story or anything like that. There's a lot going on. A lot of action. Yeah, I want. I, I wanted to raise the. I wanted to raise the bar on combat. Frankly, I wanted to. You know, give people uh, fight scenes that were just frankly more intense than anything they'd ever seen, uh, and I wanted to do that with topography. So, get set in interesting locations uh, with crazy stakes and moving targets and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, took a look as you said. You did it on my website, uh, autumnray twenty one uh, 10.com i mean that's all about you know i have i mean the video game industry so i have a lot of friends who are artists and they were nice enough to draw out for me some of the concepts so the spaceships and the map the hardware specs and the uh the timelines um and and the a lot of the art uh, relating to the books is living there so you can sort of think of that as a sort of compendium you know all authorized canon as it were as part of the books yeah, I saw you even have some um, uh, some small little videos up too on YouTube and on your site, you know, which gives you a little. It, it, it's really a, a nice way to do it, and I I, I kind of wish more authors would sort of do that. In other words, to to sort of both, you know, it's nice advertising for what they're working on, but I also think it it helps people get a good sense of what your you know what the book is about, rather than just reading a you know a paragraph on Amazon.com or something. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of author websites out there that are all about the author. And egotistical as I am, I kind of know that people are less interested in me <laughs> and more interested in the books, right? I mean, they don't yeah. want to see pictures. Unless it's a book, of, unless it's a book about see. you. Yeah, exactly, right. They, they'd want to. Right, be- exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and then I'd be in a way more interesting. I'd have some crazy credential or a big green tail or something. But But that was part of what I was trying to do, though, is is um, give people that kind of imagery, hand over to people that kind of uh, um, enhanced experience for us, that you could read the books or you could read the books and you could go online and check all that stuff out as well and see more about uh, the early 22nd century. Yeah, and for you, the, and, and I was asking earlier about the tech side of it, and, you, you, uh, and I had read that you know you did some, you worked a bit in the video game industry, so obviously a lot of this, it's stuff that you know. You know the tools, of, you know the people that can do this stuff, and and you know how it it can enhance the uh, the experience, rather than just yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, somebody goes into a bookstore and they're just looking at a whole wall of books. It's you know that that's a hard way to pick a book out. <laughs> it's it's in those, and you know, I mean, I, I will say the Phantom has done some really great covers for me. So I I do you know, I. I I'm, I'm lucky in that regard as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I my initial credential was on a game um, uh, called Home, well, now more than 10 years ago. So uh, okay. it was by uh, Vancouver uh, Relic Entertainment. Um, and Homeworld was a, you know, a really big deal at the time. It, it you know, was one of the first uh, uh, space opera games to really take things to the next level. 
all. Um, and and that that really sort of taught me a couple of things, not just the, the importance of of the visual impact, but also the importance perhaps of the narrative in video games, where in video games you're always making the player one of the characters in a sense. You're, you're immersing, there's an immersive quality in video games that, you know, I think books can desire to. And that was one of the reasons I was sort of having multiple characters across the book, you know, each of them coming from a different perspective, many of whom aren't meeting, at least initially, is that the reader is thus forced deeper into the action. I mean, not only the reader on the edge of their seat across all these crazy fight scenes, but they're also the only one who's seeing the narrative unfold across all the characters. They're really the one who has all the information and all the clues, uh, and perhaps even the only one who can really put all this together. And again, that was something that, you know, that was a kind of narrative that my video game experience really influenced me regarding. Yeah, I definitely already can pick can pick that up in, in the book. I, I can pick up it's a it's a it's a little different style than you know most typical you know sci-fi type books that I've picked up and read. There there is that that is it's almost like there's okay here's this little sort of sequence and then then we're going over to here with this person and this little sequence and yeah it's it's not like hey we're all together let's go off and save the world or whatever together and that it it, it is. It's making you almost like sort of a detective in a way, I guess, is is the way I'm seeing it so far. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, there are, there are no. I mean, it's in present tense, which was right. quite deliberate because I think that can give you a kind of almost dreamlike intensity, but a surreal kind of you know removed intensity. It's there, there are as you said, I mean, there are no chapters. Um, it's all told through different character points of view that are shifting pretty quickly, um, and yeah. though were all sort of deliberate to kind of give you the feel of these characters who are very much creatures of the edge uh, as it were, who are very much immersed in that peak experience that one starts to sense that you know their loyalty ultimately is less to the u.s and less to whatever intel bureau they happen to be working for and more to the run itself more to the mission more to the peak experience that that delivers um yeah. And, and I wanted to give the reader the flavor of what that was like. Now, I have to ask, is was that a – at what point did you decide to, to make it sort of a little different style rather than a very formal, here's here's a 25-page chapter and here's chapter two and here's another 30 pages and that? Because for, for the, you know, your first books, it seems like a, a more, I guess, more difficult approach. Did, did that come pretty quickly when you were – sort of starting it off and saying, hey, well, the way I want to do this story doesn't really work for the normal book approach, you know, type or novel approach? It just it just kind of gradually evolved through a series of styles, a lot of which were, you know, in retrospect, almost a great anti-commercial and um, oh, okay. eventually part of that was part of that part of that was learning to write, right? I mean, I cut my teeth here in heavens i started writing several years ago and um for whatever reason a lot of the things i mean i suspect if i had critique groups early in the day a lot of that stuff would have been beaten out of me right like the present tense and the the no chapters and that sort of thing it, it just gradually became the way i wanted to tell the story that it's sort of what i found once i really started to learn how to write and learn some affinity with the style was that it could kind of drench the reader in a kind of paranoid feedback. I mean, it's almost like a guitar pounding at times, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and it can be as rough or as smooth as a, as a guitar note is. Um, and I, I I had a lot 
more malleability with the narrative because of that style. Um, I think if I'd written the, the, it in a much more conventional style, the, the other the other part was that I deliberately wanted to do it in present tense because I think this is a book about memory. It's a book about the extent to which you can't trust your own past. And I never pull a, you know, oh, you thought, you know, all the stuff I told you across the 20 pages, it was all a dream. Like, I never take it to that degree. Yeah. I think that's kind right. of, with this kind of book, that's kind of cheating the reader. Um, but, but there's something about the past tense that privileges things. It kind of almost even subconsciously assures you everything's going to come out okay. And I wanted to deprive everybody of that assurance that there is no privileged narrator in that sense, that the present tense made it much more immediate. I yeah, and, and I think the, yeah, I, I, I I, I definitely think that this is was a great way to to, to approach this the the kind of story that you did because I think it's really working at least so far what I've read in the uh, but that even reminds me and goes back to what I said about how it seems fairly visual and very movieish because generally most movies with a few exceptions are that way you know it's like you know somebody you know you know t take take like uh, you know any kind of you know thriller like well take a Bond movie because there's a lot of espionage and things sure. going on you know they're they're mostly you know again with some exceptions and certain certain elements but they're mostly okay he's going here he's do doing this then that leads him to do this and then that happens and then this happens and stuff like that so um yeah i i think it, it works really well and i think it also helps really keep you turning the pages you know it's like it, it keeps you like, oh gosh, now what? Now what's going to happen? Because it's almost like you're not really quite sure what could happen because because of the way you put it together. Yeah, it is you know in that sense there is a bit of a thriller architecture there, right? Like each each page is deliberately designed to keep you turning the next, particularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Autumn rain really starts turning up the screws, and the characters start to realize you know these hackers and these mechs start to realize that they they were hunting autumn rain and now autumn rain's hunting them so that sort of turns up the screws a bit and i think you know one of the things that um you know it it, it uh, i mean there is sort of a complexity of the narrative across all these points of view in a sense you know that, that one one can sort of see across all these points of view but you know you don't quite realize where all this is going until a certain point in mm -hmm. yeah def definitely and uh i i also wanted to ask you a little bit about uh and this may be something that people have maybe brought up before or, or whatever, but how much when you write something like this, I mean, you're, you're projecting things out 100 years in the future, but I, I, I guess the simple way to ask this question is, how likely do you think any of this stuff would be to ever happen? I mean, are, is this something, are you more of an optimist? Are you more of like a realist or a pessimist? Or what, what, what's your personal kind of... Uh, viewpoint or were you just trying to create a, a a gripping story or does none of that really come into play it's into play but you're right that the, the creating a gripping story is the first imperative sure you know, and everything else flows from there and right. if you ever i think as a writer if you ever find yourself torn between a competing logic and a competing aesthetic um you have to go with the aesthetic but i unfortunately i don't think i really ever had to make that trade-off what, what i'll say is that it did strike me as interesting that one of the perils of about the near future is that people can sometimes assume that this man is prophecy, right? This is what you think will happen. Sure. And yeah. To your to your point, I mean, you know, as as a futurist, I mean, as someone who thinks about the future, there's a there's a spectrum of scenarios, and this is on that spectrum somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, the, the the geopolitics, you know. 
hey, I mean, we could be looking at a bipolar world, i.e. between, you know, an east and a west. We could be looking at a multipolar world. We could be looking something weirder um we could be looking at the breakdown of you know nation states and corporate control although that was the part of cyberpunk that always struck me as unrealistic that i i see nation states as getting uh, bigger and meaner and uglier and so i think that was where i felt i was on more solid ground is that regardless of what those nation states are um there are certain things about the future of warfare the future of space weaponization the future of cyberspace weaponization that I'm a lot more confident about, that, that you can sort of see it as different mm-hmm. layers, you know, that the, the technology and the way in which we're going to use that technology um, is 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 a degree of certainty that's greater than any of the geopolitics in there. Um, but you can certainly sketch out, I mean, you know, they were talking last week in Congress about a kill switch for the internet, right, where the president could just switch the whole thing off in the event of a massive cyber <laughs> yeah, attack, right? This is I've heard that I've heard that talk sort of a few th- times, yeah, yeah. And, and this is something which which has been part and parcel of the book, right? Is that you know for years now that we think we're in this sort of we are in this current sort of wild west phase of the internet, um, mm-hmm. but the fact of the matter is that you know. You know, sure, I'd like to think as much as the next person that the internet will set us free, and I think it's done a lot in that regard. The fact of the matter is that if I control your satellites and if I control your phone lines, I control your internet. And so when Russia invaded China, or China invaded Georgia two years ago, um, they shut down the Georgian internet. They just shut the whole thing down. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. Cyber cyber war as one more front in a larger war, and so those are the kind of parameters and possibilities that I'd be a lot certain of. Um, as to the question whether or not an optimist or a pessimist, I mean, you know, I I, I would clearly you know go with your easy choice there, realist. Yeah, uh, I would just yeah. say that you know it's it's sometimes hard to sort of say what's optimism and what's pessimism. This is a world a hundred years from now that's pretty aggressively nasty in a lot of ways. That you know. The environment is wrecked, and these two superpowers are squaring off. And yet, at the same time, humanity has colonized the moon and is boiling out the Earth-Moon system. And you know, there's a part of me that thinks, "Gee, I'm wildly optimistic to think space is going to get that far in the next hundred years." Yeah. So it's right. it's different sort of uh, different sort of levels and different angles to look at it from. I think. Yeah, I've always thought I'm kind of like more of a. I'd say I'm a, a a realist who tries to still be an optimist. <laughs> it was like, but sometimes as the as the you know as the years go on and you see and you become wiser and you see a lot more of the world and and, and people and I've I've had a chance to travel and stuff and it's it it starts to both make um, there are some times where it makes you a little bit happy and and you can see things that that say hey you know we're gonna do okay and then there are other times you go you know. I, I my my common phrase is when things are, are you know I see things that I don't really think are right or care for is I just say we're doomed you know I got to get that you know <laughs> I got to get that URL on on the internet and just get we're doomed dot com because you know it's just sometimes some days of all the stuff that you hear about it, it just makes you kind of a little bit like gosh how in the world like you said about Stephen Hawking it, how in the world with with the kind of abilities in tech and and the and the kind of stuff that can be done these days. And how dependent everyone is on, you know, say the, you know, just take the food and water, you know, that people use every day and how, how easily it could just basically all come tumbling down. I try not to dwell on that and think about it because I think it would drive me to just, you know, hide in a little hole all day. But, 
you know, there, there's just, there's just a, you know, every once in a while it just becomes, boy, we're just, every day is basically just walking along this sort of narrow, narrow little ledge, you know, and, and we just all try to not, not to fall off kind of. And I, I, if you know what I mean, does that make sense or? Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, I think that's one of the possibilities of science fiction, right? Is that it starts to prepare you for that future. It starts to help you to consider uh, possibilities, you know, like a volcano shutting down air travel, right? Or, yep. you know, a, 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 a hole torn in the, the floor of the Gulf that is, you know, poisoning the oceans that, you sure. know, yep. and, and, and hopefully it sort of wake us up and realize just how absurd and short-sighted the whole oil-based economy is <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. That it allows you to envision other possibilities. Maybe there isn't a possibility here where we all get to drive our cars as much as we like forever, and that's the American way. You know, maybe it's it's not crazy to think, gee, there's something beyond that, something more sustainable. Um, you know, so I think I think science fiction is about those kind of permutations, those kind of possibilities. I mean, it's about being able to look at ourselves through the prism of deep time, through the prism of hindsight. I mean, I, I. I I think consider myself, I suppose, to be an optimist in that I, I, I believe in humanity. I believe that we're, you know, I decline, accept the decline of man. I, 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 I think we're going to get through this. Um, mm-hmm. But you look at the wave of craziness and unity that's out there, and the, the, you know, the way we handicap ourselves with religious fundamentalism and you know this sort of thing. Every time when we need rationality the most, yeah, it can be kind of pessimistic at times. Um, yeah, I think, um, I, and I, you, you know, know, I feel, yeah, I feel the same way. And I, I, I think what I get to sometimes is that I think even though there are things that don't work out, but I think ultimately most people want to sort of be good and do the right thing. And that's the big basic thing for me that always makes me, you know, kind of have hope kind of a thing. Because I feel if, if most people really feel like that, we're going to go through a lot of garbage. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. But it, it it can also make you better, you know, if you if you can learn from it. That's that's the thing, you know, when oil spills happen and and, you know, what happened, we had, you know, that the whole Katrina thing in Louisiana, you know, if they can make changes that, oh, boy, gosh, that caught us off guard. Maybe we better do something a little different next time, you know, then then I feel better. But uh, hopefully well, part of the thing <laughs> I think. Yeah, go ahead. That I mean, part of the thing I think is that humanity is we are short term creatures by design, right? We are designed to look up on the African savanna and try and figure out if there's a leopard creeping towards us through the grass. That's basically our time horizon, mm-hmm. right? And, yep, yep, you know, so 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 the fact that we know that peak oil is coming and oil is running out and that we're going to have to transition to something else that's not really our problem is it you know i mean it's not our problem until gas gets above a certain level per gallon yeah at that point it becomes something that we is our problem we probably will try and blame somebody for it um certainly not ourselves uh and, and i think you know with, with the autumn rain with, with with science fiction science fiction is a brilliant huge canvas to draw those kind of problems on and you know with the autumn rain trilogy 100 years now i mean this is a world that We've got the means to solve many of our problems. We've built a space elevator. We've built O'Neill cylinders. We've colonized, as I said, the moon. We've uh, got fortresses at the libration points. We're, we're, we're talking even in you know, crazy long-term terms of you know, terraforming Mars and this sort of thing. We, we have the mechanisms to solve our problems, but we're still plagued 
by the same old geopolitical nightmares. We've still got all these weapons and this arms race and all these weapons pointed at each other and all this distrust. Um, and and it's, so, it's that, it was that sort of tension of a world trying to turn the corner against its own ballast that I was really trying to get across with this trilogy and perhaps why I did, you know, a whole trilogy to, to describe the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was one of, you know, obviously you, you probably know, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And one, one thing that Star Trek, you know, that I've always, uh, you know, it's been a little tricky always to kind of get get across to other people that, that don't know it or maybe aren't into it as much is just, you know, how you get to a point in, in time where the whole world is kind of all happy and working together. You know, in other words, how, how do you get from from where we are now to, to that point? And I've always thought, you know, you, you need something almost to to shock everyone, you know, say, like, we're just not going to let that happen or, or common enemy, maybe. Who knows? But, you know, it's just people. Yeah, you're right. They're just thinking about their next meal or their next, you know, t- you know, later today, tomorrow, maybe next week. And that and that's about it. And and, and corporations that that tend to, you know, work on some of those areas I think because of the economy over the last few years, especially, have it unfortunately become even worse. They're even thinking even narrower. I, you know, I'm involved in science and 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 do it as a job, and it, it, it's it's a little scary. But all you know, a lot of companies have shut shut down. You know, a lot of their future work just because they don't got they don't have the money for it anymore. You know, they're thinking about just you know the next fiscal quarter or something like that, and that that scares me. That's the kind of stuff that, boy, that's that's bad. You know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting too, right? I mean, yeah, the, the, the you look at the R and D of American creations, and the R kind of fell away in the last several years. We got the D, we got some development, but long term research really isn't there anymore. And you know, I, mean, I worked in corporate America for a number of years, and it's hard to get anyone to care about anything beyond the quarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and, and beyond a lot. the next beyond, beyond the next reporting quarter. Yeah, they just want to really make themselves and their the bottom line for their quarter and the time they're in sort of power and charge look good that that's the part that uh, kind of bugs me a little bit anyway we're getting a little um off your book uh book topic uh i wanted to ask and i always ask this when i talk to authors and stuff because i'm uh, you know i i dabble in writing now and then too but do you how much do you sort of plan and then how much do you sit down and write and how do you work? Cause there's obviously a lot of research and a lot of tech in your books. How much of that do you sort of learn as you go is what I, what I'm kind of getting at. I mean, do you, do you write? And then when you get to a thing that you need to, like you mentioned, um, you know, colonizing the moon and, and the Lagrange points and stuff like that. I mean, how much of that do you just sort of try to learn about that ahead of time and then start to write or what's your process, I guess. I think the, the initial process has to be world building. I mean, the initial process has to be you're trying to sketch out. I mean, okay. the best thing I ever wrote was the time the timeline of future history that's at the end of Mirrored Heavens. That was the first, I mean, it's, it's modified, so, but that was the first thing I ever wrote okay, way right. back in the day. Sort of to get you an, um, a feel for how you got to this point and, and everything. Okay. Yeah, just, I mean, like I said, it was realizing, you know, that what what would it be like if a new Eastern superpower rose to challenge the U.S. amid the 21st century plague with its own crap? Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, some of it was coming at it from, as I said, the weaponization space. They're doing a lot of reading there. Um, and then trying to sort of sketch things out. So with the space elevator, for example, that features so prominently in the heavens, 
it struck me, ah, you know, geo elevator that's coming out of the equator that goes all the way out past geosynchronous orbit. I don't know if we're going to have the technology to get there in 100 years, but a LEO elevator, a 4,000-kilometer-long elevator that rotates around the Earth that in order to get to you just need to reach suborbital velocities, um, that might be more plausible. So it was making – you know, there's no. It was making those sort of judgment calls and that kind of prognostication. Once that was done, then to sort of the second part of your question, you know, I mean, because there was a lot of toggling, endless toggling between characters and plot and mm-hmm. worlds. Yeah, keep going back and forth between those three. If you imagine those three at the points of a triangle, um, but the story itself was all pre-planned out and pretty mapped out. I mean, okay. I'm not one of those writers who just kind of dive in and then their subconscious starts magically humming cool tunes to themselves <laughs> that that doesn't really my subconscious is you know it would trip me up uh and i'd go over the cliff at that point. yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it would laugh all the way down <laughs> so i i i, I don't want to i don't want to sort of you know i'm not perhaps as spontaneous a writer as i'm out there it's not like i won't make discoveries while i'm writing but it's very planned out i mean i, I think if you if you try and get in there with an outline or without a this is what i want to accomplish in each scene that's like shooting a movie in hollywood and going off into the desert with a million dollars camera equipment and you don't have a script and no um, CR, exactly and i hear that happens sometimes. yeah uh, you I, know i hear that does happen but some, at the same time there's some movies i think they I they would have been better off almost if they did did it that way <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they're yeah, uh but that 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 was sort of my approach to it was that sort of initial planning stage really yeah yeah now uh are you uh are you somebody that uses the internet a lot in your research? You mentioned you know you've you've been reading a lot of things related to some of the the tech and that, or do you you know is it a little bit of mix of things off the internet and things in real books or magazines and how how it's pretty much I mean I mean the internet is obviously tremendously helpful because it's like I said that was what exposed me to a lot of the papers at the Air War College and in particular a paper by a guy named. Uh, Thomas Bell, he was a lieutenant colonel back then, I don't know what he is now, but on, on the weaponization of space, on the possibilities inherent now, what it's like when you have uh, we could hit any point on the planet with directed energy weaponry, you know we could hit any point on the planet in real time at the speed of light uh, when the missile shields that Ronald Reagan talked about become reality I mean, what is the implications of that for war, that a lot of that came from looking at the internet papers on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's probably the bulk of my research. Uh, I mean, the internet's great because you could always order, you know, books, you know, used, research books used for the cheap. And that's also useful as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to say this. I probably should have said it even way back earlier in the uh, discussion, but uh, – I've always been curious too on when when an author gets started, especially someone with the, you know some of their first books. Was this the um, sort of the first uh, idea that you had for a book? Did you have like I guess did you sit down one day you know with a piece of paper and say, boy, I'd like to write a book about this and maybe this and maybe this book, and then you ended up zeroing in on this topic, or or I guess was this the only one that you really wanted to do? It would be my question, and and maybe some of those other ones are things you're going to work on in the future. More. more- more the latter, to be honest, and, and I think that's rare for an author. I think usually when you're talking with an author, they the book that gets published is the is the is one in the sequence. You know, you write five novels and you put them in the trunk, and then you write the sixth, and that gets published. And I kind of did my galloping through the auspices of one novel, of one trilogy, really. Okay. Um, and and that was um, 
Yeah, because it just suddenly occurred to me several years ago that, like, there's, like I said, there's this area of science fiction that no one's addressing. I mean, I started to look at the, the plans, the military plans, like I said, of, of what weapons in space is really going to look like and what directed energy satellites, particle beams in space will do. And I thought, gee, this just isn't being addressed in science fiction. Just, I'm not seeing it out there. Um, and I felt like I was onto something. You know, I felt like it was almost like that moment in Indiana Jones where he realizes that everyone's digging for the in the wrong place. Like I felt I had the coordinates to something cool. Uh-huh. And I kind of just pursued that ever since. Now, now I certainly other problems have occurred to me along the way. And I think one of the reasons why I eventually got this one over the finish line is that I didn't get distracted with them. I think one of the takes that one can make as an amateur writer is you start something because it's really cool and then you go over to something else because it's really cool and you keep going and i <laughs> yeah i know what that's I, like I, yeah. I, I have a i mean i have a i have for better or for worse i have a you know uh just a a, a, a bloody-minded kind of persistence of i'm going to keep dragging this rock through the desert for as long as it takes yeah um and so i put those other projects I have another project, a fantasy project, which I'm going to start beginning now okay. that the Autumn Rain trilogy is done. Uh, but I'm not really one of those guys I can work on multiple projects at once. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, – well, I, I, yeah, I definitely agree that this is – you know, the, the the closest thing I think some of the stuff that you've got going in these books comes to – and again, maybe it's your video game background, but they're – you know, video games tend to – sort of somewhat touch upon the kind of story and, and, and some of the tech and the military parts of the book that uh, that you've got here. You know, they, video games love to use, you know, any, any kind of shooter game or anything like that. It's like, uh, oh, look, we've got, you know, super soldiers running around with all this tech, and, and that's a great thing for a video game. But, uh, but actual novels seem to be like, you know, we're on this, you know, it's 500 years or 1,000 years in the future or even some future way even beyond that and uh and and just to, to see something in just a fairly near you know very plausible kind of future is, is uh is a nice uh and is a nice thing to see well i was trying to i was trying to uh appreciate that i mean i was trying to make it a future that was you know familiar and at the same time surreal by virtue of you know the uh, hundred years from now, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the, all this term about short-term and medium-term science fiction, it's all BS anyway, right? Because a sure. hundred yeah. years from now, we'll all be dead. You know, <laughs> I mean, you, you and I will be dead and under the ground, my friend, but that's true a hundred years from now and, and it's true a thousand yeah. years from now, yeah. right? I mean, these things are all long-term futures in that sense. Um, well, people but, always but, look back, you know, they'll look back at movies or books written even 50, 100 years ago and say, you know, where are the flying cars? Where is my jet pack? Where is my, you know, this and that? And, and it's like, well, maybe we don't have some of those things, but we have stuff now that people didn't even really barely dream of 50 plus years ago. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, I mean, so, no, one, no one saw the Internet coming. Right, I mean, right. It's, well, it's, yeah, I mean, there, there's just there's just stuff that would have been. You know, Arthur C. Clarke always had that, you know, whatever the, his his line was, you know, whatever sufficiently advanced technology looks like magic. You know, just think about some of the things we right. have now that if you showed it to some guy, you know, you know, let's go back even further. I won't say 50 years, but if you go back 100 or more years and you could and you showed somebody, you know, your little, you know, your little iPod in your pocket, they think you were the devil. You know, <laughs> so. So, right, yeah, well, right, they'll right. Be, like you said, 100 years from now, there'll, there'll be things that we won't even have imagined and then stuff that we have imagined just will never have happened for whatever reason. You know, usually it's economics or what did they make money off of, you, you know, a lot of it <laughs> or, or well, you know, 
that's the, the interesting thing, right? It's, it's the unpredictability of it, right? That, you know, I think, I forget who it was, maybe it was Frederick Paul who said that, uh, you know, they, you know, predicting cars wouldn't have been the problem. Predicting traffic jams, now that's a real genie. Yes, it's a good, yeah, that. exactly. The ramifications of whatever the technology is, right? Because you think, oh gosh, if you have all these cars and they can go so fast, why would you ever have traffic, right? <laughs> because they'd be right. It makes it, it makes perfect sense, it, you know. It, and any marshal contrary to each other, right? You know, but uh, but no, they're not. And uh, it's called limited bad roads. Is basically what it is. I just drove down to Chicago yeah. last weekend, and I can tell you, boy, that's Chicago traffic. Oh my gosh, I you know, <laughs> just gives me chills. Thinking. Well, I think I think that's the thing. It, it's it's uh, you're having flashbacks. It's it's uh, it, it's it's one of the things, right? Is that like you know. People are like, oh, so, you know, what about flying cars now? What are the cars of the future going to be? It's a matter of not just looking at through the prism of that technology, looking at the broader society itself. I mean, I, I suspect there will be no cars. I suspect it's going to be all public transit, and that's going to be the response of the world to, you know, uh, problematic environment and uh, peak oil. Um, I could be wrong, but yeah, I think you know, that, what I'm saying is that yeah. – you know, with a lot of these sort of things, I mean, obviously the problem with flying cars is, you know, you can't trust people to drive the non-flying. Yeah, exactly. Let alone the flying ones. They're, they're scary when, um, they're, when they're only on, you know, the ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you imagine that? Like a world like the fifth element or something <laughs> like that? Those things would be crashing and hitting each other all the time. Unless, you know, what's likely to happen is, you know, across they, the next 10, 20 years. They fly themselves. They're going to be automatically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's going to happen with cars anyway. You'll probably need oh, yeah, the insurance premium. I saw something on a program about that. You know, what was that movie that was from a few years ago where the cars did drive themselves? Was Tom Cruise in it? That one that was... Uh... Yeah, Minority Report. Yeah, exactly. Report. Is that the one where they would fly or they would drive themselves? You just sort of programmed in your destination, you sat back, and uh, and then it went really fast and stuff. But the, uh... but yeah, and then there was... I thought I saw a program too not long ago where they embedded something in roads that the car could kind of follow, and they've been testing that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it's... You know, that's the great thing about sci-fi and what you're doing and what others do that it, it, it just here's all these things that you could possibly do. Here's a, here's what we're, people are imagining. And then, they you know, everyone has, you know, they can pick and choose. Well, gosh, let's work on that and let's work on that. And, uh, you know, so it, it's. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think it's a matter I mean, in some ways of like, you know, you're just sort of building that that broader future and that broader, you know, here's a set of possibilities get too frightened by them because they may not take, take place. Don't get too optimistic about them because they may not take place. And then trying to sort of map that out. Like I said, my obsession was really about philosophically, it was about the nature of identity and the nature of memory. And technology-wise was about the idea that I felt a lot of particularly near-term science fiction writers were giving up on space, that they weren't seeing space as realistic anymore. And I, I believe our destiny is in space. I think that's where we're going. That's where we've got to go. We've got to get off the floor of this gravity well. Um, and so I was writing a book about that, you know, that, that sort of featured those obsessions front and center. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's just uh, people always try to look at sometimes, you know, when I say that I enjoy science fiction and books and, and movies and things. And, then, you know, there will be some people that say, well, that'll never happen or or whatever. That doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, you know, I, I don't you know, it's. It might never happen, but you know it's fun to think about, and it also I think is is a great source for um, for people who are working in in you know those few people that are still working on future things and future research, and I, I think it gives them a lot of inspiration. I mean that 
that's been talked about for a long time. There are so many stories and so many scientists out there, and they ask them, you know, I'm I'm an example even of that of, you know, hey, you know, why why are you a scientist or whatever? Well, I, I was I, I read a lot and watched a lot of sci-fi when I was growing up, so uh, you know, and I, I wanted to make some of that happen if I could. Yeah, and I think it's it's you know, history has a way of surprising, uh, and. I think in some ways that was one of the perils of writing about the near future, right, is that people want to be much certain about these things than they have a right to be. I, I was <laughs> I, I was surprised by, you know, the, the, the degree of action from some people. You, you have folks out there who, you know, they'll listen to endless stories about faster than light travel and the singularity. Mm-hmm. and aliens and what have you and you tell them that hey you know i think russia might be a superpower 100 years from now and suddenly their foam in the mouth it's like no that couldn't possibly happen <laughs> right exactly and blah 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 it's like uh, and it's like you know well yeah. russia russia's yeah. been written off before guys and yeah. uh uh you know it, it's this thing of we don't know what's going to happen right we don't and i think this is what science fiction is about it's about Touching out possibilities, but helping us to realize that the one thing humans crave is certainty, right? I mean, is that leopard really behind yeah. that bush or not? You know, and with this kind of thing, these who are much more abstract matters, we don't have that certainty. We'll never have that certainty. Yeah, there's there, there's some um, yeah there's some people out there that that you know you're almost and I could, I could see why that's maybe some why some people don't write about the near future just because they're they're worried that people will have a. a a stronger viewpoint or opinion about that than maybe like you said uh, oh here's a here's a ship that can you know visit a, a new star every five minutes and you know basically breaks all these you know laws of physics that really but they they accept that that's just part of it but but tell them like you said that this is the way maybe the the politics of the near future might be and they they have a much you know more you know strong opinion about well no 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 i don't agree with that but for me, always it's just been, and that's what I think most people, hopefully, listening to the to this podcast will will be intrigued. Is just is is it an interesting and gripping story? You know, it, it it's like will, yeah. will it ever you know whatever any of this comes to be that that isn't really I don't think that's your point. I, I think it's just it, you're trying to tell an entertaining story. I would say. Would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is all about is narrative is the god here, right? I mean, it's all about the narrative. It's all about letting that story unfold. It's all about, I mean, the phrase I use is the calibration of revelation, right? Like how you reveal these facts to the readers at what points in the story mm-hmm. as the story yeah. unfolds. That, that's what's critical. The, the main game here with Mirrod Evans is to keep you turning the page to the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm just want to stop with the interview so I can go read some more. <laughs> but, uh, but the, uh, you know, to, to sort of wind things down, I don't want to take too much more of your time up, but uh, was there, um, there are three books. Uh, was there anything, any, anything else that you wanted to get on, you know, pass on to people listening about the books or anything like that? I know you're doing some, some signings and, and I guess all that information can be found at the, uh, is the best website that uh, autumnrain2110.com? Is that the best uh, site to look at for your? You've got some upcoming uh, dates. You're going to be in bookstores and things. Yeah, that's the best place to take a look for me. Uh, autumnrain2110.com, and that's all one word. 2110 being the year in which the books are set. Uh, at this point, actually, there's only a couple more. There's one in the DC area on July 7th. Uh, Return to Borders there, and then I'll be at Comic Con. Uh, as well. Oh, you're going to be um, a so comic sort of okay. done. 
All right. I'll, I'll be yeah. So, uh, uh, so anyone who's out there, definitely come out and say hi because I'll be signing at the Bantam booth. Yeah, we de- uh, we definitely have some uh, some people that are uh, that are listening and uh, active members. I know we've got a, a friend of mine, Kenny, in California. He always goes to Comic Con, and I think there's a few others that uh, that end up down there. And uh, have you been to Comic Con before? I have. That's <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a three ring circus, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've never been. It's, it's been. I've been a little uh, remiss, and you know, I've I've been to a lot of conventions and things over the years, but Comic Con for some reason, I don't know, it almost scares me a little bit. <laughs> it just is. Uh, Comic Con's crazy. Yeah, it's a mad, mad scene, and you know, I know guys who have been doing it since it started when it was like thirty people. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, exactly. And it, uh, you know, you know, you just imagine how it's caught fire. It's amazing to me of how much it's it's sort of sort of spread out into terms of like all these different like you know movies and television and books uh, of just it, it's like one big entertainment convention you know I'm I'm actually surprised that they've managed to hang on to the name Comic Con because because the the the, <laughs> the comic part of it you know comic books and, and those related properties have, have almost been pushed a little bit you know down down the road a little to a degree i mean there are you know there's tv shows and and things going there that that aren't even like fantasy or science fiction oriented at all i mean they're they're straight up dramas and stuff and it's just it's just amazing to me of how many you know it's like oh gotta go to comic-con gotta advertise whatever you know this this property is but it's yeah it's gone gone nuts well it's like you know these guys at marvel and dc were sort of typical publishers you know 20 years ago right it was typical publisher yeah. money yeah. and now with the infusion of hollywood they're riding around in lear jets and it's just it's just like they're printing money i mean it's it's and it and it's and it's a welcome development in many ways right? i mean hollywood realized that it was drying up with ideas and they they with batman they started to turn to halt to comics and they've been mining that ever since um yeah i'm always amazed know, I'm always amazed because, you know, when I was growing up, you know, science fiction, fantasy and entertainment was like it was like basically the bastard child. I mean, it was like there there was barely anything out there. And and what was out there, people didn't really even want to admit they were watching it for the most part. And now it's like, you know, it's the main movies this summer. Like, as always, it's the ones that make the most money. And, And like you said, this is where they're turning to comic books. You know, I've read comics for a long time and. This is where they finally decided, hey, boy, those are pretty interesting stories, and, and maybe we can make a movie out of that and make some money. And, and you know, they 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 realized what we realized a long time ago, I guess. And yeah, these things are good stories, and they're, yeah. they're intensely visual as well. Yes, exactly. They lend themselves to that. And if they're done well, there certainly have been some really stinkers and some bad ones, but if they're done well, like you know, they, then... There, there's nothing wrong, and the, the great thing for me about it has, has always been is that there's people out there that were never at all interested in this kind of stuff that I hear from pretty much weekly, uh, you know, that said, "Wow, you know, I, I, I didn't think I would like this, but, but I do." You know what I mean? And maybe that will then get them to pick up a sci-fi book. Maybe they've never read a science fiction novel, and maybe somebody will, you know, that that uh, is listening to this or find your website another way. You know they'll they'll pick up your book and they'll go wow that's you know that's I don't it's not just for not just for geeks anymore <laughs> you know it's yeah it's it's for any, yeah it, it wants to think about the like, future and anyone who wants a really cool story yes exactly exactly like my wife is not really a big science fiction fan but I think from what you've described and what I've read so far your book I mean I, she does like reading 
you know, those kinds of books, thrillers and things with a lot of interesting characters and action and stuff like that, you know, and, and I think she would, she would like this, even though she isn't really a, what you'd call a sci-fi fan type of thing. So, well, Dave, I want to wind this down. uh, Go ahead. By by all means, recommend it to her. I I won't stand in your way. Yeah. Well, I have (laughs) my copy right here and I'll pass it on to her when I'm done. She, she can read, she's, she's a lot faster. She can read a book and, you know, like, you know, if she's got an appointment at the dentist or something while she's waiting, I mean, she, she reads fast. So, uh, but, uh, I, I just want to say it was great talking to you. I, I, I think this went well and I, I think everyone's going to really enjoy your book and, and listening to this as well. And hopefully that will, we'll get, uh, some more people, uh, uh, out there and, and talking about autumn rain and, uh, and, and the trilogy that you put out. And it's, uh, it's really exciting and I'm glad that, uh, and maybe, uh, do you have any plans to maybe revisit this sort of time frame, even though it wouldn't be like, uh, you know, like you said, you wrote three books and that was that. Do you do you, do you think you might ever do that uh, in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to write any more sequels. I, mean, right. I think I'm, I'm three. I'm three and done for that. I, yeah. I don't want. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I wanted to sort of conclude these stories, but yeah, the the world of the early 22nd century, the world of the Second Cold War, is a real. One and I could easily see myself writing prequels. I mean, I could see myself uh-huh. writing things set in the 21st century, perhaps not even involving the same characters, but just in this sort of Cold War between the East and West. There's a lot of interesting stories I could return to there. Mm-hmm. Like I said, though, what I'm looking at right now is fantasy. I mean, that's probably you know alternate history fantasy is probably where I'm going next, but um, you know I'll keep you posted in that regard. I mean, for yeah. now it's cool because. Like I said, it is a completed trilogy. Readers who pick up the first book know that there's two more books out there waiting for them, and the whole story will get told. And like I said, the the uh, the the clearinghouse for all this is on AutumnRain2110.com. That's probably the first port of call to check out more about the world. Great, great. All right, well, just just hang on the line. I'm just going to stop the recording part of it, but we, we can talk for a couple more minutes. But uh, again, Dave, yeah. uh, I really want to thank you. This is David uh, Williams, who's written a. Uh, a great uh, three-book series. Uh, it's called, uh, what do we have? The Mirrored Heavens is the first book. Then Burning Skies is the second one. Burning Skies is the second, yeah, exactly. And then the Machinery of Light. Machinery of Light is the last Machinery of Light concludes the trilogy. Well, thanks very much, Dave. Uh, I really appreciate talking to you. It was real interesting. And uh, just hang on. I'll be right back. Sounds good, Rick. Thanks so much. Transfer of data is complete. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with uh, Dave Williams and myself. It was great. Uh, always fun to talk to someone, uh, an author, and, and learn a little bit more about how they come up with what they do and the, the different roads they take when they're working on novels. And uh, definitely check out his uh, website and, and check out for his uh, books on Amazon and bookstores. Again, it's Autumn Rain. 2110.com to check all that out. Next week on Treks in Sci-Fi, I'm going to uh, be doing something kind of a little bit different. Uh, what I'm going to do next weekend is look at Star Trek sidekicks, characters like, um, you know, char- not the main characters, characters that don't really get a lot of screen time, but we, we all know them and love them. Uh, characters like Barkley, uh, Nurse Chapel in the original series, uh, you know, just I, I could come up with a whole bunch of others, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, you'd see them, they pop up in a few episodes. Uh, I, I'd say maybe even Q could be considered a Trek sidekick. So if you have any comments about that topic, uh, send them in to treksf at gmail.com, and I'll uh, get them on next week's uh, edition of Treks in Sci-Fi. 
Uh, until then, I hope everyone's having a great 4th of July for those in the States, and I will talk to you next time. Bye-bye.